This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. This is God's word. Please be seated. Excellent job today, by the way. Sometimes you sit down before I say anything and you preempt it, but very good. Today, only two of you sat before I said anything. So thank you. We're continuing on in our sermon series on worship. And we're in the middle of a series, and especially when you're in a topical series, sometimes it can be curious when you find yourself, if you've missed one or two, and so rather than uh, just moving on, I do want to briefly recap at least the, the main structure of what we've been trying to do in this series so that you can find yourself, sort of like a mall map. This is where we are. You start there, right? Where are we? The first week, we talked about worship by answering the question, most basically, what is worship? And we said, in a sense, broadly, worship is all of life. It's that thing that's plugged into your GPS. It's that destination that everything in your life is going to take you to. And we said that thing is what you love the most. And we also said then that although all of life is worship, the second week, there is something unique that happens in corporate worship. So we asked the question, why do we gather And we said we gather because we've been summoned to draw near to God, and there are certain things that happen. And one of the core things we talked about last week was that we're engaging in a covenant renewal ceremony. And this is why, big language, but essentially when we say we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ as Christians, sometimes we'll say we have a personal relationship. And that's not bad as long as we understand what we mean by that. The Bible says we have a covenant relationship. That's the Bible's language. So we talked about how a covenant is made. And we said that in a similar way, when we're, we're married for a certain amount of time, people may have a, a renewal of the vows is what they might call it. They'll, they'll renew their vows. And in a sense, that's just another way of saying covenant renewal. So you can renew your covenant of marriage by renewing your vows. But because Christians are in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we are in covenant with him. And every week when we come together, we are renewing that covenant. Now, today, we're going to talk about the various elements of that renewal. Why do we choose to do the things that we do? Every week, we basically do the same thing at New City. If you've been here, the songs change, the sermon basically changes, at least the text changes. And we, we have this structure that stays the same. 
and you may have noticed it, you may not have noticed it, but if you look at a worship folder from today or three months ago, they're going to be basically the same. And the reason is, is because we believe and understand like the church has for millennia, that story and repetition are some of the most powerful things that shape us. What story are you in directs what direction you'll take in life? What will be most important to you? And the things that you continue to do will do something to you. They'll shape you. So if you do things over and over and over, they are making you into a certain type of person. If, if you mainly consume rather than create, you'll become a consumeristic person. That's just an example that we've talked about already in the series. And so story and repetition, we don't get to opt out of those things. Stories are always calling us to live in them, and we're always doing the same things over and over. The question is, what story are you living into, and what repetition are you partaking in? Story and repetition are the way we change. And so why get creative? We are every week representing the story of Jesus. We're putting it forward to remind us that this is the story that we live in. And through that story and by repetition, we begin to desire that story more and more. Now, some of you think to yourself, well, I'm not a very consistent person, right? I, that may be true for you, but I don't, I'm not a repetitious person. I'm not very disciplined. I'm sporadic. I'm all over the place. Well, no, you're not. You wish you were. You wish you were that original, but you're not. And I'll tell you what. Many of us, for example, aren't really happy with our mornings or our evenings. We feel like, oh man, here I am again, so late. I thought I was going to go to bed earlier tonight and get up earlier, and it just keeps repeating itself over and over and over. So you tell yourself, I'm going to set a new morning ritual or a rhythm. I'm going to set a new evening ritual or a rhythm. Well, let me tell you something. You don't get to start that from scratch. You actually already have an evening ritual or a morning ritual. Think about it. Before you can change it, just go and think about what you tend to do when you wake up, right? If it's you brush your teeth, what side do you start on? Because you probably, certainly, start on the same side every morning, and you didn't even know. You weren't even clued in. This is the way habit works, and they stack. You do one thing, and it leads to another, and it leads to another, and it leads to another. We are people who are constantly living into a story that defines us, and we're constantly being shaped by repetition. And so the power is, is when we name this repetition, we can better engage this repetition. When we name this repetition, we can better engage this repetition, which is why today the whole sermon is going to be walking us through the elements of covenant renewal worship at New City so that we can better name the repetition, so that we can better engage the repetition. Got it? All right, I'm going to try. You know, a seminary professor of mine once wrote in a book about why repetition in corporate worship seems so inauthentic to people in our culture. And he talks about it some, and he goes on for a bit about it. But one of the things he says is, if we come in and assume that things have to be different, they have to be new in order for us to get anything out of corporate worship, we're making the wrong assumption about what it means to be human, and we're presuming the wrong things about how the human heart works. Okay, if you say, man, I don't like repetition because it gets rote. We just do the same things every week. I don't like that. I would say that, first of all, that's a good, that's a good impulse. We don't want things to get rote. 
But let me, let me press in on the assumption of how they get wrote. I think oftentimes we think of our heart as though it's like an assembly line. In other words, if you think of an assembly line, what happens is if it's a car, a, a piece is assembled and then it moves on, right? It never goes back. Because if it goes back, that's not a good thing. But once a piece is correctly assembled, it moves on, and then the car keeps stacking and being built and being built until you have a final product. If we view the human heart or us as a machine on an assembly line, the way that we would think about life is, okay, once I get this truth, once I understand this truth, I've acquired it, and now I move on to the next thing. And failure looks like going back and learning the same thing. Failure, failure looks, back, looks like going back and doing the same thing. Now, it'd be true, that would be a failure if your heart mainly worked like an assembly line. But it doesn't, because you're a human being who forgets. You're a human being who grows like a spiral, like this. Not like a straight line, not like an assembly line. That's not how we work. That's not how God has designed us. And so we have to come back and relearn truths. We have to come back and be recalibrated to the truth because we too easily forget the gospel. We doubt its power. We get distracted from its purposes. And we have these new problems, these new spiritual problems, but we don't need new answers. We need the same answers to the new problem, which is why we come back to the repetition of the gospel. So today, I want to follow through uh, the worship folder and I want to do two things. One, I want to show you that the way we organize corporate worship, first of all, it's not new. I'm not going to show you that. I'm just going to tell you. It's not new. I mean, we haven't come up with this. I mean, it's millennia of churches who've been doing the same thing. The new thing is doing a new thing. Okay? This is not new. This is old. Okay? And it's not good because it's old, right? As though we have that type of snobbery. If it's old, it's better. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there's warrant in the scriptures for how God has made us to keep doing this thing. And the warrant in the scriptures is that the way we organize the corporate worship liturgy is the way that God has been working with his people all throughout time. And I'm gonna show you those two things. That we didn't make it up, get it from the Bible, and I'm gonna show you, because we got a certain thing from the Bible, this is how we do it in corporate worship. So first, call to worship. God calls us. So we start every week this way. We have a gathering song, and then God calls us to worship from his word. Now, this, is, this has been happening in relationship all throughout time. Even in creation, God called light out of darkness. He called the earth from the sea. If you're a Christian, God has called you from darkness to light. There's always a beckoning from God. There's always a first move from God. And when God calls you out, something new is created, right? It's, it's when, when a husband uh, or when a future husband proposes to, to a woman, he, he calls her out. He asks her to enter into covenant relationship with him. And when they're married, they create something new. It's the way God works too. God calls things out to make something new. Now, one of the things that I wanna do today is I wanna show you that there are counter stories constantly happening. In other words, it's not just corporate worship that's going to do these things to you. There are all types of counter stories. For example, God isn't the only one calling you every day to follow him. There are lots of other things calling you every day to follow it. Lots of things. Something is calling you every day and you're responding to it. Something is calling you every moment 
and you're responding to it. From the moment you get up, whether you're conscious of it or not, something is beckoning you. Something is wooing you. Something is calling you. And it's most insidious when we don't realize it. It could be the call of reputation. Why do you choose the clothes you choose in the morning? Maybe because you like them. Maybe it's because you're worried about your reputation. Why do you do the things you do? Why do you make the decisions you make? Maybe it's the call of reputation. Maybe it's the call of approval. Everything in your life is so that you'll finally be accepted by somebody. And that group of somebodies changes, but that call is beckoning you. You have multiple audiences to, to get approval from rather than just one. Maybe it's the call of productivity. I love being productive. But if you live to be productive, then you become a human doing, not a human being. You're constantly doing in order to find identity. And there is a strong story that tells you if you just be productive, you'll be successful. But of course, we know when we're productive, we're always making trade-offs, right? We're always sacrificing something if we're doing something else. We say yes to something, we're saying no to something else. And so it's a bad God to follow all the time. Maybe it's the call of comfort and complacency, right? And when you wake up, you're going to do everything you can to stay comfortable. You're going to do everything you can to be complacent. You might work hard, but it's not for anything else except to finally just collapse at the end of the day because that's what you really wanted was to stay comfortable and complacent. You see, these are counter stories that are telling you a story of the good life and you're constantly being drawn towards something. Now, we've said this already. I'm going to remind you of this. In the idea of a call to worship, we don't mainly push ourselves to do things by what we think. That's not mainly how we work. We mainly do what we do because we're drawn by what we love. What you love will draw you. Not mainly what you think. So if I want to know something about you, I'm going to say, what do you want? What do you want? And if you don't have an immediate answer to that, that's a dangerous place to be. I would rather be more aware of what I want and it's the wrong thing than not know what I want because whatever I want is controlling me. If I know what it is, I can repent. If I don't, I'm in trouble. You're in trouble. So something is calling you. And we love this idea of calling, don't we? We love this idea of calling. I found my calling. Even people who are non-religious, people who wouldn't even say they're spiritual, we use this nomenclature of calling when it comes to what we decide to do with our career or whatever it is. But of course, the word calling means that there is a caller, right? Something is calling you and you're saying, I have found it or I've responded to it. And that's not new to the Bible. The Bible knows there's a caller. The Bible knows you do have a calling. But in order to find that, in order to live into it, we have to be listening to the, to the right voice, listening to the right caller. Because oftentimes, our calling that we happen to find puts us right in the center. It puts us right in the center. But the Bible tells us that if we are to understand calling correctly, we have to be displaced from the center. 
we don't carry enough gravity to be in the center of our solar system. If, we're in, if I'm in the center of my solar system, everything else that in my life, my kids, my family, my friends that's in orbit in my life is in peril. Because if I'm in the center, I don't have the gravity to keep it all together. I'll make everything about me and I'll hurt a lot of people. But if God, the caller, the true caller, the gravitas that he has, if he's in the center of the solar system of my life, then maybe I hear the right voice, the right caller. So when we start corporate worship with a call to worship, the first thing that should happen is we should be displaced from the center of our life. You did not choose to be here, you responded. I did not choose to be here, I responded. God has called you, God has called us. That's the way it works in the Bible and that's why the church historically has started corporate worship with a call to worship. Next, what God does when he calls the people out, like when he called Abraham out that we read about in the call to worship, interestingly, it's like we planned this or something. Anyway, so in the call to worship, we had Nehemiah from CBR and he talks about Abraham. God called him out. What happened after that? God cleanses him. Genesis 17, it's circumcision. So the way God cleanses us is we come in a response and we confess our sins. That's why we do a confession because we need to be forgiven week in and week out, which is why we confess our sins next. And confession can be like a weird thing. In our culture, it could be a weird thing. And and even in, in the church, there are good questions like, well, if Jesus has forgiven us of our sins, why do we confess our sins every week? Why do we do that? Well, the analogy I'm about to use, it's not a perfect analogy. There are no perfect analogies. But when, when you took a vow in marriage, right? Because I'm using this example because it's a covenant relationship. When you took a vow in marriage, you said that you would be with that person till death do you part. And then you say other things like in sickness and in health and plenty and in want. Well, one of the things that I always charge the husband and wife when I officiate a wedding is, listen, you guys are making a declaration of future love. This isn't mainly about how you love each other right now. It's about how you're going to mess each other up in the future and you're going to have to love each other then. You can't, you can't promise fluffy unicorn butterflies in your stomach 50 years from now. But what you can do is you can make a decision that you're going to forgive each other. So we talk about that. Well, what if I told my wife, yeah, I know that I wronged you badly this week, but we took vows. We took vows. We're not going to you can't leave me. This isn't a, an offense that you can divorce me over. So get over it. Right? We, we dealt with this. We dealt with this years ago. No, uh-uh. that's not the way relationships work. So if you treat God, if I treat God mainly like he's a mechanical thing rather than a personal being, then we'll ask ourselves, well, if Jesus forgave us for our sins, why do I have to confess my sins? But you realize just because God loves you and there's nothing you can do to change that doesn't mean that you can relate to him the same when you're sinning consciously, right? This is a real relationship with back and forth. It has ups and downs. Your relationship with Jesus has ups and downs. And it's not because he's moved. It's not because he's changed. It's because I've changed. It's because I've moved. It's because I've loved other things. That's the song we sang, right? I have not loved him as, as I ought. I haven't served him as I ought. And so we confess our sins because we're confessing reality. Now, here's the thing. When we confess our sins, 
we're acknowledging that everything's not okay about me, that I'm broken, that I have issues. And the reason we have confession of sin as well in corporate worship is just to remind us that we don't have issues in general. We have issues in specifics, which is why this morning I said, confess your sins specifically to the Lord. And we specifically have sinned against him. And so when we have that time, we're confronted with our brokenness. But let's go back to the counterfeit stories. In the same way that there are counterfeit callers, there are also moments in counterfeit stories where we do become aware of our brokenness. And I think there's two main ways, apart from Jesus, that people deal with their brokenness. The first way is that they cover it up. And the Bible talks about this. When you realize there's darkness in you, you have to come to the light, not stay in the darkness. And a lot of people, apart from the gospel story, and by the way, even we can be living apart from the gospel story, so don't hear us them, okay? What happens is, is that when we come face to face and are confronted with our brokenness, we have a tendency where we try to cover it up. And we can do that in a few ways. One, we can hide, we can pull back, we can get small. Or sometimes we swing to the other side and we can get big out of our insecurity and we can belittle other people, whether it's in our heart or with our words. Anyway, anything so that we don't have to face our brokenness, anything so that we don't have to face the bad decisions that we've made. So sometimes we cover it up. Sometimes, though, we listen to the voice that coddles our brokenness. So what happens is we hear the voice says, no, 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 you're, you're this way. Be honest. You're special. Be authentic. You don't need to change. You don't need to grow. Everything's fine about you. And there's this message of coddling, right? Like that, we used to be repressive. To change, to repent, to confess, that's repressive. Let's just all be honest and accept each other for how we are. But the beauty of the gospel is that when we encounter, when we're confronted with that real brokenness, when we come to confess in corporate worship, we're not covering it up. In fact, we're bringing it to the light. We're exposing ourselves. But the second part about the beautiful thing is that God doesn't coddle us. He, he does not make light of sin. What God does, he doesn't hide it. He doesn't cover it. He doesn't coddle us. He cleanses us. There's a big difference. Because what happens when we confess our sin is God cleanses us. 1 John 1, 9, again from CBR this last week. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, and by the way, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This word cleanse means purify. So God is gonna remove every impediment that keeps me from fellowship with him. And so then, when I'm in fellowship with him, I can actually be changed. So the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to cover up your brokenness. You don't have to be coddled, right? Because what happens then is you, you stay in your dysfunction, you never change, you don't grow, you act like you're happy, but you're not. But it's a way of coping. But in the gospel, we're cleansed, which is why we confess, because when we confess, we're cleansed. So God calls the people out, makes them new. He then cleanses them, and then he consecrates them. And when we do consecration in corporate worship, what we're doing is what you're experiencing right now and what you almost experienced with the passage that didn't come on the screen. <laughs> you almost experienced it this morning. 
The point is, is after we're cleansed in corporate worship, we're given a word of assurance that God, after we come and expose all of our darkness to his light, he doesn't just smirk. He doesn't remain silent. He doesn't give you the sideways stare like, I guess I'll let you in. He gives us a word of promise that cannot be removed, that cannot be shaken, no matter how we feel about it. He speaks over us. And in this case, it was from 1 John that he forgives us. And then, guess what? He doesn't say, but go over here because you might mess something else up. So go over here. I do forgive you. I love you, but stay over there. No, he consecrates us. He says, I've cleansed you for a purpose. I still have a purpose for you. I cleaned you up so I could send you back out. That very brokenness that you were so ashamed of, I'm gonna use that. I'm gonna turn it on its head. That's the way the kingdom works. That fear that you have, I'm gonna use that. I'm gonna minister through you. I'm gonna show my power through your weakness. I'm gonna show my power through your pain, through your confusion. God consecrates us. And the way this happens in the scripture is that God calls the people, he then cleanses them, and then he instructs them. We read it in Nehemiah. Do you remember that? They found, if, you, if you're with us in CBR, in Nehemiah, they found the law. And they said, oh, God's called us out from the nations. And God has made a way for us to forgive our sin. So then they sacrifice unto the Lord. And then guess what? God consecrates them through his word and says, I have a purpose for you. You don't have to go find your purpose somewhere else. I have a purpose for you. And so for us, he then instructs them in Nehemiah chapter eight. And that's why we have a sermon. It's because after we've been called out, after we've confessed our sins, after we've been cleansed, we then need instruction. Because God's not done with us. God wants to use us. God wants to send us. But before he can send us, he must bless us with his word. He must change us with his word. He must recalibrate us. He must renew us. He must remind us of who we are. So he consecrates us. And then God communes with us. I love food. I love food and I know you love food. And everyone loves food which is why we love going out to dinner with friends. It's why we love eating and drinking with friends. It's why in community groups, one of the elements we've now implemented at New City is a meal, a regular meal where people sit around a table and break bread together. You see, in the ancient Near Eastern times, in the Bible times, meals were not less important, but probably more important than we experience them in our culture. And this is why. When we want to make a contract with someone, we used to maybe shake, our, shake someone's hand, but now what do we do? We sign on the dotted line. That's how we ratify an agreement. But in a Bible, in the Bible, when a covenant is made, oftentimes you have a meal. You see, they'll, they'll name the stipulations of the covenant and the way they'll ratify it is they'll eat together. They'll bring an animal, they'll slaughter the animal, they'll cook it up, and they eat together. Here's an example. So if you remember the story of Jacob, Jacob cheats his brother, and his brother's trying to kill him, and so he runs away to family in the distant, in the distant country over, over next to them, geographically speaking. And it happens to be his uncle, or his mom's brother, Laban. And when he's there, 
he falls in love with one of Laban's daughters. And Laban says, oh, absolutely, uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you my daughter. But then he tricks him and gives him the wrong daughter. I if you're curious about how that happens, you can go read it in Genesis. So finally, they wait, Jacob wakes up the next morning and it's the wrong woman. Eventually, Laban gives him the right one. So now he's got two wives. And that never works out well in the Bible anyway. So they have two wives. He has two wives. And then Laban keeps using Jacob because Jacob is really successful. Jacob realizes he's being used. So he decides to run away. So as he's running away, three days go by. He's got family. He's got his wives. And he's got his servants. And he's got his animals. And he's got his kids. So they're not going very fast. Laban finally gets clued into this that he's not coming back. And so he chases him down. The night before he gets to him, God tells him, do not touch him or I will burn you alive, is basically what he says. So he does catch up with Jacob the next day and they make an agreement that the, the, neither of them will cross the line. Jacob won't come back where Laban is. Laban won't go over here. That was an agreement. You and I, we would have signed on the dotted line. But guess what they did? In Genesis chapter 31, they ate together. And I could give you all types of examples for this. They ate together. They had a meal together. And so we should expect then that every time there's a covenant renewal ceremony between God and his people in the Bible, that they eat a meal. And guess what? There is. There is. One of the offerings that always happens in Leviticus every year is a fellowship offering. And in this particular offering, what happens is that an animal was brought and the fat is burned for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And sometimes what happens is the priests take the food. And sometimes what happens is the whole animal gets burned up. But there is one offering where something else happens. And it's called the fellowship offering. And what happens is it turns into a barbecue. So the fat is offered to the Lord, pleasing aroma. And then they cook the rest of the animal. And God hosts a meal between the priests and the people and himself. You see, every week that you and I come into corporate worship and we're engaging this covenant renewal ceremony with the Lord, God has provided a meal for us. Now, if you notice, it's not here. It's not here right now. And that was on purpose. Because in, in the, for the next few moments, as I finish up this sermon, my hope is that you would so long that this would be here, that you would ache that you would so long that we would be invited to a meal with Jesus that you would leave here longing for next week when we do come to this table. And I want you to know that starting next week, every week, we will have communion. Not every other week, every week. You see, another way to answer the question, why do we gather on Sunday, is to say, because God's invited us to a meal. That's another way to answer that question. You see, now we finally get to our text, and don't worry, we're almost done. This is a famous passage. They're eating a meal together. This is the Passover meal. And oftentimes, the two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are rightly tied to two things in the Old Testament that make them sacraments. So the Passover 
with the Lord's Supper and circumcision with baptism. And that's right. We should understand the Lord's Supper to be pointing back to the Passover meal. But it's also pointing to something else. It's pointing to a covenant renewal meal. When we renew the covenant, God offers us a meal at his table. That's what Jesus says here. He says, verse 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. This is a covenant renewal. I'm not making this up. We're renewing a covenant, which means where's the meal? Where's the meal? And that means that when we come, it's not just a memorial to Jesus. Jesus is actually dining with us. You see, the Holy Spirit, if you're in union with Jesus, takes us up into the heavenly places and Jesus' real presence is with us. We're being nourished by his body. Something actually happens. So it's not just a memorial. We're having a meal with Jesus. It's nourishing our faith. Just like the calories of bread nourish your body. Just like the wine of of his blood nourishes your body. But if you read on, Jesus says, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This meal is also pointing forward to a future meal. This meal is pointing forward to the meal all of us should be longing for, which is the final marriage supper of the Lamb when we are in our resurrected bodies and Jesus brings the kingdom down and and all sickness is gone, all tears are wiped away. We're going to eat. First thing we're going to do is we're going to eat at this banquet. And let me tell you something. If you're like me, your inclination is to think, finally, Jesus will be on his throne at this meal and I will come and I will serve him. And let me tell you, that's actually not what's gonna happen. You know what's gonna happen? Is Jesus is gonna tell us to sit down and he's gonna dress himself for service And he's going to serve us. Why do you think he washed the disciples' feet? He put on the apron and he washed their feet as before they were about to have this meal. And you and I, we hear that and we think, no, no. That's what Peter thought. Peter said, oh no, Lord, not me. Do not wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. And he said, then wash my whole body. This is actually in the Bible. Luke chapter 12, verse 37. Jesus is talking about the marriage marriage feast of the lamb. And he says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, Jesus, the master, will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Jesus has invited us to a meal. He's offered himself now. We have fellowship over a meal with the triune God. And so every week, it's not wrong if you don't do it every week. 
but we're going to do it every week because the word preached and the word seen in the sacrament belong together. And so as sure as the words I just spoke to you this week that Jesus will serve you because he came to serve, not to be served, as sure as you can be next week and from then on, you can be as sure as the actual bread in your mouth. It's that real. It confirms it. It seals it. And so, lastly, of course, God commissions. So he calls, he cleanses, he consecrates, he communes, and he commissions. But we're not going to talk about that this week. Next week, the whole sermon is on commission. Next week, the whole sermon is on commission, and we transition into the fact that God sends us in the world to serve. And so, as we are about to sing and respond, I hope that you reflect on this and know that the reason we do the things we do is because story and repetition is what changes us. And the more we understand the repetition, the better we can engage the repetition. Let's pray. Father, we come and I said a lot of words. And my prayer is that you would nix everything that was unhelpful and that you would lodge in our hearts everything that was of you. That it would be stuck and grow and take root in our hearts and minds. That for some people in this room, this would be a redefining moment because they were just going through the motions. And of course, that's us. All of us at some point just go through the motions. But I pray that less and less, and that more and more we would prepare on Saturday night, we would prepare on Sunday morning to know that you're calling us, you're gonna cleanse us, you're consecrating us for your purposes. You have invited us to a meal and you will send us out to use us for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.